Hey guys, you're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly gimme radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. Thanks for tuning in. My good friend, music journalist Jay Bennett is back for another episode of Classic Records. This time around, we're covering At The Gate's Slaughter of the Soul. A record that most will agree is iconic and has changed the course of death metal, inspiring a whole legion of bands. If you dig the show, please share, leave an iTunes review, and tell all your friends about it. If you want to hit me up with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi, the best way is to DM me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Michael underscore DC underscore Hill. Slaughter of the Soul the fourth studio album by At The Gates, Swedish death metal band. Probably one of the most influential bands of the 90s, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. Yeah, so um, um, you know, the record was released October 3rd, 1995 on Eric Records, recorded May through July 1995, produced by Frederick Nordstrom, recorded and mixed at Studio Fredman, Gothenburg, Sweden. Program length, 34 minutes and 8 seconds. Tomas Lindbergh on vocals. Anders Jorler on guitar. He plays phaser drums on the song Into the Dead Sky. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Martin Larson, guitar. Jonas Jorler on bass. Adrian Erlandson on drums. And of course, we have uh, Andy LaRock from King Diamond appears. Um, he rips a solo on Cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, what's what's really cool about this episode specifically, Jay, is that you put together this wonderful piece for Decibel Magazine's Hall of Fame for this album. So, um, yeah, I'm assuming you have like all these uh, insights into the recording, the, the the creation of this album that a lot of us don't have yeah that's true and you know i had to um i had that article came out quite some time ago i I don't know if your listeners are familiar with decibels hall of fame series but it's been it's been going on for quite some time and this at the gates article was actually the second one uh the second hall of fame article uh it came out in march of 2005 i had to like refer back to the internet to find that um the first album in the fame or the first album in the hall of fame was Rain and Blood by Slayer. Oh, um, so this was the second. This was the second one we did, and um, uh, yeah, I had to go back and 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 review because you know it's been some time, you know, fourteen years or something. Um, but you know, going back over the article, and I remember speaking to those guys about this record, um, and I was very excited because I had I don't think I had spoken to any of them before, um, and I, you know I I loved this record then. I love it now. Um, but what was interesting at the time, um, 
well, among many things, but Martin Larson, uh, one of the guitar players, he had, uh, by the time I spoke with him in, you know, probably early 2005 or late 2004, depending on the interview took place, he had kind of stopped playing music. Um, At the Gates was not a band at the time that I did these interviews. Um, They broke up 10 months or so, something like that, after this record, after Slaughter Soul came out. Um, and they got back together in 2007, but at the time I did the interviews, they were not a band. Um, and Martin Larson had not only not played music, um, in quite some time, he, he hadn't spoken English in so long. But he was, he was nervous about, he's, he, he, I remember corresponding with him on email and he was like, I haven't spoken English in like eight years. Wow. So I, I don't know how this is going to go. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, yeah, you know, you know what's you know what's actually kind of interesting is a lot of people back in the '90s were saying that uh, Slaughter of the Soul was the rain and blood of the '90s. So I think it's really uh, sort of there's like some synchronicity here with Decibel going for Rain and Blood with their first uh, Hall of Fame record, and this being the second one. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think what was especially interesting about Slaughter of the Soul is that. It seems like, uh, you know, there was kind of this wave of melodic bands, of melodic death metal bands coming out of Sweden, you know, with your, your, uh, I mean, a dissection I know is kind of like on that black metal, death metal kind of line, but they were definitely more melodic than all the other black metal bands. So you had oh, dissection, yeah. Yeah. you had activates, you had, you know, dark tranquility, in flames, all these kind of bands that were injecting melody into this. And how I saw that play out, at least in the States, and I think, you, you know, I'm sure you saw this too, most of the bands that seemed to pick up on that at first were hardcore bands. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely, for sure. I mean, you, yeah. know, you know, there was uh, Darkest Hour. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, that, that, comes, that band comes to mind immediately, uh, Year of Our Lord, which was a yep. Yep. probably lesser known metallic hardcore band from New England. Yep. And then yep. later, then uh, Black Dahlia Murder, you know. Black Dahlia Murder, yeah. And then you have, yeah, the bands. And then you have the bands that everyone knows, like the Black Dahlia Murders. And then, especially in Massachusetts, where, where we came up, um, you had, you know, Shadows Fall mm-hmm. and Kill Switch Engage and all these kinds of bands that were sort of, um, you know, um, riding that line between metal and hardcore. And, um, uh, um, but with, but, but definitely like, melodic death metal like that was the thing and and at the gates was definitely at the forefront of all that like i didn't see you know not to diss those other bands but i didn't see any of those bands saying like shouting out in flames or dark tranquility in their interviews or something it was always at the gates slaughter of the soul yeah well i mean that record i mean i I remember hearing it in uh, the 90s around you know 95 96 that, that time frame and i was like i'd never actually i mean you know, de- it was a death metal record, but prior yeah. to that, the death metal that I knew was like, you know, Carcass, Morbid Angel, you know, I think Niles, rec- that first Nile record was out, um, you know, very brutal, amelodic kind of stuff. And yeah. then when I heard Slaughter of the Soul, it was like an Iron Maiden kind of thing. It was like if Iron Maiden was a death metal band, it would sound like so- this particular record, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, and I think, you know, Carcass is an interesting one to mention because I think they did a similar thing in that, you know, Carcass started out as like a sort of like 
really primitive sort of like grindcore band that was kind of like their early records, especially their first record was kind of like almost like indecipherable, like what was happening. Yeah. And, and then by the time you got to like Heartwork, they were a melodic death metal band, you know, and I think that record came out, I don't know, this around the same time, was it a year or two before or after Slot of Soul? It was very, they were right around in that same time period, you know? Yeah, it was in the same, the same, you know, sort of era. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, they were, they were done with brutal, the brutality of uh, yeah. the rawness of those early records. There was like an interesting thing happening in sort of like extreme metal for a lack of a better term at that time. Um, with sort of the injection of the melody into black metal and death metal. And I think at the, like clearly at the forefront of that, you know? Well, also let's remember too, that um, 1995, like metal was kind of at an all time low too. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I yeah. mean, it wasn't really um, not nearly as popular as it is now. And a lot of these tours, were they they would have to package like you know four or five bands just to get like 150 people to come out yeah you know yeah. so i mean this record you know coming out at the time and and it having like a very old i mean that whole swedish melodic sound to me you know almost has like a new wave of british heavy metal like sort of twist to it you know what i mean like very you know solos and guitar harmonies and you know melodic the melody yeah so, oh that's man absolutely yeah so for them to like reach further like back into like a hard almost like a hard rock sort of um vibration at that particular time and to be as successful as it was i thought was like you know pretty you know pretty unlikely yet amazing yeah no yeah no i i agree man they were i mean they were um they were sort of ahead of their time but at this at at but simultaneously they were really kind of refining what they had kind of done all all along really um it, they kind of are always did this style it just wasn't as good until they hit this point really you know what i mean like um you know unlike carcass who kind of like you know the example i used before kind of ch changed their style like almost completely at the gates didn't really do that they just kind of improved upon what they were already doing you know yeah yeah some of the other earlier records you know there's definitely the melody was where you can see the progression of the band yeah you know as they got better at playing and better at songwriting yeah the other thing i really dug about the band too is that tomas Lindbergh was you know he kind of walked that line between being like a, a crust punk and a metal guy you know what i mean yeah totally man he had like the dreadlocks and um, I think even, you know, I, I went back and reread my Hall of Fame piece and he kind of was talking about how, um, I think it was that, or I read some other article, but he was kind of talking about he, how he was always kind of like sort of 50% metal and 50% hardcore. He kind of was always that way. And, you know, obviously he's played in many hardcore bands in Sweden as well. So he, he's kind of always, um, you know, um, he listens to both types of music, like country and Western, you know? <laughs> both types of music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, and also the record sounded um, better than most of its contemporary uh, releases at the time, too. You know, sonically, that record was like, I remember putting, I remember hearing it in the van for the very first time, and I was, I'd never actually heard this, that sort of quality on like an earache release. Like, I thought it was like the best sounding record probably to this day that that label had put out, you know? Yeah, you know, and I would have to go back and look at Frederick Nordstrom's history, but I, I, I feel like, I mean, he was definitely doing other, he definitely had done other records at that time, but I think that was kind of one of the records that 
I mean, it wasn't not it wasn't long after that, like three or four years after that. I mean, he was like the guy for for this stuff. You know what I mean? Like it was definitely one of the records that kind of made his name, you know. What's funny about this record being a classic record here on Metal Matters is that it actually is a record that most people will agree is, is a classic record. <laughs> I was just thinking yeah. about that, you know. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty. Um, it's pretty undeniable, and that goes again. That goes. You know, that kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier. It's like it's not just metal people that are into this record. Um, you know, it, it's like. Um, you'll get people like not only hardcore guys, but there's kind of people who don't even like really listen to metal who will be like, Oh yeah, slaughter the soul. Like, you know what I mean? It's got that, like that crossover into, into, um, you know, almost, I mean, not quite mainstream, but something approaching that, like, you know what I mean? It's, it's known beyond, um, you know, the metal world in some way. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, um, I would venture to say probably one of the most influential records in extreme music because of that, you know? Yeah. I mean, like we, like we yeah. mentioned earlier, these other bands that were inspired by it. So now the curious thing though, and maybe you can shed some light on this is this record came out. It's probably to date at the time this record came out, the band's finest moment as far as like producing a record that was powerful and impactful. Yeah. And then 10 months later, the band disappears for 11 years. <laughs> Mm. So, yeah. you know, what, you know, any, any idea why the band broke up or is it just like well, time to break up? Yeah. So from what I understand, um, Anders, uh, one of the twins of the guitar player, um, was just, um, kind of couldn't take the pressure. Apparently they were just kind of, the album did really well. They toured, um, you know, they toured Europe, they toured the States. They were kind of all set up to do another one. Um, you know, Earache was kind of like chomping at the bit, wanting another record, and he kind of just couldn't, didn't want to deal with, you know, they were getting tour offers after tour offers, like these tours had stacked up for like months on end. I think they were on tour for like seven months straight before they broke up, like something ridiculous like that. Um, and he was just like, I can't take it anymore. Um, and so he quit, and they were like, well, he writes most of the music. Um, so, uh, you know... <laughs> What are we going to do? And I, ironically, I think, uh, and this is, I have to double check this to make sure I've got the right twin. Cause I always get Anders and Jonas, the twin brothers confused. Um, but, uh, so ironically, Anders quit again. Like, so the band got back together in 2007. They did two more records, uh, including one that came out like last year. Yeah. And, and Anders quit again before that record came out and they and they went ahead and did another one um, without him, anyways. And they, but they were concerned at the time. At, at the time of the slaughter of soul time, they felt that that they couldn't do that. Um, so they broke up. But another interesting thing that um, you know, speaking of the, you know, the, I think the fact that they broke up so soon after this came out, and it was such a good record, it kind of cemented their legendary status. And um, you know, that was kind of borne out because you know. It, 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 Tampa, Thomas Lindbergh is kind of quoted as saying, um, you know, it's not often that you, you see, you know, his royalty checks were more, uh, like eight years after the record came out or <laughs> <laughs> like when it came, like, you know what I mean? Like it, you don't see that very often where like the record is selling more eight years later than it did when it came out. I mean, that's, that's pretty 
it's pretty unusual, you know? I probably should have uh, researched this before this conversation, but do you know if that record charted at all? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, I, I highly doubt it charted in the States. Um, maybe in Europe somehow, but I'm not sure. I mean, you know, it's funny. Uh, I, there's also, um, there's also some quotes from the band members from that time talking about how they got, a, I mean, they got a lot of good reviews, but they also got like an alarming number of bad reviews too, when this record came out. So it, it kind of wasn't maybe the instantaneous hit that it maybe seems to be in retrospect. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, that's, I find that odd because I know I do remember when it came out. And, you know, I was living in Boston. I was working at the Newberry Comics Warehouse. And um, along with, like, a uh, cast of future uh, luminaries, <laughs> including, uh, you know, members of ISIS and Blood for Blood and whatever. And I remember um, everyone loving this record, man. I, I, did, I couldn't. It's, it's like every, people that were, I was surprised like this record. You know what I mean? Yeah. Emo kids, like we were talking before. Metal kids, yep. hardcore kids. So, yeah, I, I don't, I just always remember people glowing about this album. And, uh, and it was undeniable to me that it was a fine record. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, man. And, you know, it's still, you know, I listen to it. This, this is one of the records I come back to regularly. Like, you know, it's been out for 20 plus years at this point, you know, 20, almost 25 years. Crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and it is one of those records that I find myself gravitating back to um like i mean you know i had it on cd for years and years and i actually just bought a vinyl copy of this like last year i think i never had it on vinyl and i was like yeah you know what i i, I that's one of those records you just gotta have it you know um and uh it just doesn't it holds up man too you know it was it was great in 95 and it's great now you know how did you find this record was it like you know something that came to you as far as like you know, you were doing, you were writing at that point, I think, right? No, I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't quite started writing yet. Okay, so this came out in 95. I want to say I came across this because I was, um, so I, I was said before I started doing the show, there was a show on WERS in Boston uh, called Nasty Habits, which was the metal show. Um, and I started doing the show in 96 at some point. Okay. But, but the guy who did it before me with Mark Thompson, who you know, um, uh, he, um, he would, you know, they would always get the new releases in at the station. And this was one, of course, this was one of those new, new releases. Um, and he played it for me, um, when it was new, you know, hot off the press. And, um, um, I was like, you know, instantly blown away. And then this, this was something that we would play like regularly on that show. I mean, it was, you know, it was a staple um, even back then, you know, I mean, I took over that show in 96 and I was still playing it, you know, when it was like a year old or so, you know, two years old. Um, so, um, yeah, that I'm pretty sure that's how I heard it. Yeah. Wow. Nasty habits. W E R S. Yeah. I was just talking about that show. Did that show, does that show still exist by any chance? I don't think so. No, no. But the, wasn't there like the demise of that radio show happened because someone like literally forgot to renew with the, with the college or something like that? I don't know how the show ended, but there's an interesting that, but the, the story about how it started is fascinating. Not to get too off track, but I'll just give the brief synopsis. Apparently it was started by a guy who was not even a student at Emerson College. He just kind of bluffed his way into it. 
and started the show. And that guy was later uh, arrested uh, and convicted of a murder charge, like really? years and years later. Yeah, like l- long after I had even done the show, like at some point in the in the early two thousands or something. Um, yeah, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Another, another quick uh, question about nasty habits. Um, yeah. Were you the DJ when my old band played on Nasty Habits, or was it Thompson? Or were you there? I, I don't remember exactly. Well, well, when Otis played? Yeah. I think that would have been Thompson. Okay. Yeah, that would have been Thompson's era. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Those are good times. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Back to uh, At The Gates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember hearing this, at, like I said, at the Newberry Comics Warehouse, and that was like you know, 96 and, um, you know, working there, uh, actually as much of a, a sort of dreary kind of job as that was working in a warehouse, it definitely was a way that, um, I was able to find out about a lot of new music cause we'd get promos and they would just, you know, something cool would play it like when you're working to yeah. you know make the day go by a little quicker. And then I, I remember hearing this and I was just like, damn, this is like, one of the most incredible things I think I've ever heard. And right out of the box with Blinded by Fear, it's like, you know, it's almost like that track is like too good to be an opening track on the album. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, and a uh, funny story about that song. It, it was the last song that they wrote uh, for the album. And they wrote it specifically because they felt they needed uh, an opener. They felt they didn't have one. Um and, you know, Anders, that the song was written very quickly, um, and he thinks it's the worst song on the record. Or at least he did. Yeah, he did when, He did at the time I interviewed him in whatever it was, you know, 15 years ago. Um, that's what he told me. Um, yeah, it was like, it was almost like an afterthought. It was like their, it was like their, the equivalent of like, you know, Paranoid for Black Sabbath, which was like, <laughs> they just needed to fill up the space. And so they wrote this song in like 10 seconds, and there it becomes the classic, you know, track. What uh, what other tracks do you dig on this record? Like, do you have any favorites? Uh, I mean, man, the title track is like unstoppable, you know. Um, and cold, of course, is really good. Um, and I've got some fun facts about both of those songs. Um, the famous, uh, you know, everybody knows, um, you know, in the title track, the, the very beginning, Thomas Lindbergh shouts, "Go!" Yeah. Um, that apparently took was they were so meticulous about the vocals uh, that took forty takes to get that just the go, the, the go forty takes to get it just right where where Thomas and Frederick Nordstrom wanted it forty takes, um, and the lyrics for Cold my other favorite uh, apparently Thomas Lindbergh wrote the lyrics after watching um, Menace to Society the really? uh, Hughes film yep huh yeah I don't I don't see the connection though. Well, the, the, the song is kind of about societal decay, I suppose. Okay. Um, so I guess that's where it comes from. And there's another movie reference in the film, uh, or a sample even, the sound of the gun cocking at the okay. beginning of Suicide Nation. Yeah. Uh, that is a sam- that's from Reservoir Dogs. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a favorite, uh, favorite film of mine, actually. Yeah, there you go. That, that co- I mean, there's so many guns being cocked in Reservoir Dogs, it's hard to say which one. But they they sampled one of them for Suicide Nation at the very beginning. You know, it's possible that there is only one sound of a gun being cocked being used throughout the entire film. 
It's know, true. Because all you that stuff did. is all done and, you know, it's all like sound right. replaced, like, you know, sound design. It's like Lars Ulrich's um, snare on load. Oh, God. <laughs> and, you know, you know, once again, to, to go on a little bit of a tangent, um, you know, it's, it's sad to think that Metallica really only existed for me in those first few years. And I think in like 1989 is like when that band ended to cease to exist for me. And that's a long time ago, man. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, but you know, speaking of uh drum, uh, motherfuckery, can we say that? I don't know. Maybe you yeah, can edit man. that out. Yeah. It's a good so, word. uh, this was from my article, the, the, the hall of fame article. Uh, this was kind of a new thing that wasn't being done that much in, in 1995. But uh, uh, Adrian Erlinson's kick drum, 20% of it, or roughly 20%, is the kick drum sound from Pantera's Far Beyond Driven. They mix that in. And 20% of his snare is actually the snare from Rain and Blood. Really? So yeah, that yeah, that's what he told me. Yeah, and that was like, and and at, so and Slaughter the Soul is one of the first records that's not like a like a big commercial like major label record to to do that apparently. Yeah, it's uh, it leads back to what I was saying earlier. Like you know, like this is probably, I think to to date, you know, twenty nineteen probably the best sounding record you know earache has ever put out. And yeah. that's and that's why it blew my mind even more so back then because I was listening, you know, used to listening to like you know Napalm Death and. You know, records sound good, you know, but like this one sounded like some next level production. And I guess they were doing some trickery in the studio that like, you know, was was ahead of the ahead of the curve as far as like independent records go. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's also it's something else that goes into it. Not just I mean, the, the sound is I mean, obviously, there's the quality of the production. But also, I mean, I think there's something to be said for I mean, the history of this record is. I mean, it is a it is a revenge album. Okay. Like these guys at the gates were on before this record came out, before they even wrote it. You know, when they were they were on this tour in England. They were these were they were signed to Peaceville Records at this time, mm-hmm. the previous record. Uh, and they're on this tour uh, in England, and the promoter took off with all the cash after just two shows. And um, they were kind of stranded. They, they were in England with like no food, like nothing for like four days. And Peaceville, the record label, um, like wouldn't like either wouldn't bail. It's unclear. Either they wouldn't bail them out or didn't have the money to bail them out. But either way, um, at the gates were pretty frustrated with that. So they were on tour with Seance at the time, which was um, Patrick Jensen's band, who, of course, went on to be in Witchery and then went on to be in The Haunted with the with the Bureau brothers from at the gates. Um they're on tour Seance. Seance were on Blackmark, which was Bathory's label. Uh, Patrick somehow convinced Blackmark to like fax over a contract that allowed Blackmark to like basically give At the Gates bailout cash so they could get home. But they didn't pay it back in 45 days to have the rights to the next record. Oh. Um, but then Eric came in, and Eric kind of put even more money, enough money. Eric, uh, Eric apparently gave him enough money that they were able to pay off Blackmark, um, and and still go into the studio um, for like six weeks or something um, to record this record. So um, 
and they were pissed at the gates were like that's kind of how the article starts that's kind of the the prelude to all of this um they were pissed about that situation and that kind of went into um that was kind of the attitude they had going into this record so um i think that comes across too certainly you know yeah definitely and I mean that, and that's a in an era when people were spending money on making records too. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the record sounds like they spent money on it for sure. Yeah, but more more importantly though, it sounds like these guys rehearsed like eight hours a day before they went <laughs> in to record the album. You know what I mean? <laughs> so totally, absolutely. And I'm pretty. I'm yeah. That was the case. From what I can gather, that was absolutely the case. I mean, um, you know. I think there's a line in the article where he's like, yeah, we didn't do pre-production. I mean, we just rehearsed a lot, you know? <laughs> yeah. I remember that being like very um, apparent to me when I first heard this record and it actually motivated me to get into like a very uh, disciplined rehearsal schedule with the band I was playing in at the time. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And I yeah. was thinking about like at the, you know, at the gates and I think I might've read an interview talking about, one of the, one of the members talking about how they were doing double sessions of rehearsal and stuff, and it made me think about like wrestling practice and two two a days and stuff like that. And I'm like, man, this this is like a really good approach for music, you know. And and that kind of put me on my like uh, drill sergeant sort of approach to band rehearsal, <laughs> at least during the late '90s. And um, yeah, and I think that that it comes across in the record just because of the precision. And I think it was. This is like in the 90s, so it had to be before all of like, you know, Pro Tools where you could, you know, you could punch in in milliseconds. So I'm assuming they recorded this whole thing on tape, which yeah. isn't, isn't as forgiving as the electronic media, you know? Yeah, they, they, that's another thing they pointed out too. All these songs were played like all the way through, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. yeah, and they were super stringent about that. And another thing to point out, you know, talking about the production, how great it sounds and how well rehearsed they are. That's it just goes to show you that stuff is way more important than your equipment because Anders was playing a $200 guitar through a speaker cabinet that he built with his dad. It was really? a home, it was a homemade speaker cabinet. Um, and it was, and, 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 uh, it, it sounded so good that the guy from Jesper, the, uh, Jesper from In Flames, uh, asked to borrow it for their next record <laughs> for In Flames' next record, yeah. Yeah, it's funny how a lot of those bands in Sweden, like, you know, even Entombed, like, they, they were talking about how they played through combos, you know, on, on those yeah. early Entombed records with just the HM2 yeah. pedal. Yeah, yeah, which sounds insane to us now, but it's like, you know, um, I mean, I'm pretty sure those Burzum, I mean, not that the Burzum records were like sonic masterpieces, but I'm pretty sure that, that, that all that stuff was through a combo amp, too. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I, one, of the, one of the things that's memorable about um, Until the Light Takes Us is is Varg talking about uh, making th you know the first Burzum record and uh, you know he didn't want to spend any time getting sounds and he instructed the engineer to come up with the worst sounding microphone possible <laughs> and that would that would be perfect for, uh, for you know for the record and I guess they recorded a lot of that using just like headphones or something like that you know yeah like insane insane yeah, yeah. but you know what man like the the use of the uh, the the HM2 pedal, you know, which is like that Swedish guitar sound. Yeah, I've yeah. Never, never been able to like get that to sound the right way, recorded or live. You know, it's never I mean, worked. It's, my see, my experience with it is that it's like so distinct 
that it's just, it makes all those, I mean, you know it instantly when you hear it, you know? And it's so, it's even like, I, on the t- I don't even have one anymore, but when I did have one, I would p- turn it on and be like, oh, that sounds just like that record, which is great, but it's also like, well, do I want to just sound like all that other stuff? You know what I mean? It's like so like, I can pick it out, like on, on, uh, on, you know, I can pick it out when, on a record, when, the, 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 you know, there's a big HM2 revival that's been, seems to be happening lately. And it's like, just so obvious. It's so, um, it's so distinct. It just seems like you're, you're signing up for this like pre-made, uh, it's like a, you know, it's like, it's just, it's, it's pre, it sounds prefab at this point. It doesn't have the magic that it had on, you know, um, left-hand path or something like that, you know? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's, I mean, there was, this is like the second revival, I think of the HM2 pedal. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was one, I remember like maybe 10 years ago, I felt like there's tons of bands putting out records and touring. And I'd look down and I'd see these dudes all playing through HM2 pedals. And, um, I, I like bought several of them because I wanted to find, you know, I figured, I'd be able to find one that sounded cool that I would like, but I never was able to make it work for me really. Yeah. And I just remember yeah. we toured with a band one time in Europe and the dude, the guitar player had a, he was the HM2 guy. And it was like, it was all cool. Like when you're doing single notes, but then whenever you went to chords, it was just like, you couldn't even discern like what chord was being played. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 But actually, I don't know if these guys actually used uh, HM2 on these records. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, see, that's a good one. See, I, I think whatever they did. I mean, I remember reading. Okay, so they. they if I'm remembering the article right, uh, they they use a bunch. They tried a different, a, a many different amps and many different pedals. They didn't name any specifically. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the HM2 is in there, but it's being done like it's definitely not on both guitars and. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, so they're, they're offsetting it somehow. So you're not, so you don't hear this and go, Oh, HM2. Like it's, it's being blended in tastefully. I might add with whatever the other guy is doing, if it's even there, you know? Yeah. I, I would, I would think that it's probably layered in there somewhere just because they're Swedish, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, that's, um, that 11 year hiatus, that they took, um, you know, Lindbergh went on to do a bunch of different bands too during that period. Oh yeah. Like a, like a million bands, yeah. a million bands. You know, the great deceiver. Yeah. Um, the, the great deceiver. Um, what else was he in, man? I mean, I used to be able to, uh, so let's see the great deceiver. Oh, he was in lockup for a minute, the crown for a minute. Uh, his hardcore band was skit system, which was kind of sort of, Oh, Disfear, dude. Disfear. That feel- yeah, Relapse yeah. put out a bunch of their records. Yeah. I mean, I guess I think Disfear is still, I mean, that's one of those bands that I wouldn't be surprised if like next year they had an album come out. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just no, seems absolutely. like this project yeah. thing that, you know, is always sort of in, you know, in production at some point. So, I mean, yeah, it was 11 years before they pl- before they got back together, but it was actually almost almost 20 before they put out another record. They're, At War With Reality didn't come out until 2014. Wow. Yeah, because it yeah. started out as just like reunions, I think, right? Yeah. Like they were just going to yeah. go and play like Slaughter of the Soul like live. And then Oh, it, I remember doing like interviews for years with them where they're like, no. And the same thing with Carcass. Nope, we're not we're not putting out a new record. We don't want to tarnish the legacy. No, 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 no. We're not going to do it. And then 
they did it. But I, I got to say, as much as I, I do like their last couple records, but... Yeah, in fact, I would even go as far as to say that I like the newest one, To Drink From The Night Itself. I thought A War Reality was, was really good when it came out. It was cool. It wasn't as good as Slaughter the Soul. Um, neither is the new one. But I think To Drink From The Night Itself, which came out last year, is actually better than At War With Reality. And it's interesting because what I like about it is that I think it's kind of like a throwback to Slaughter of the Soul in a lot of ways. Um, and Anders is not on that record. So um, it's kind of it kind of makes you scratch your head a little bit, but it's cool, you know? I wasn't aware that Anders wasn't on that record until you just said that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I saw them last summer at a Hellfest, and it was incredible. And I have to say that, like, I jumped up and down, like, extra hard when they played the songs from Slaughter of the Soul. Yeah, of course. They still yeah, what's, what's are your, just so impactful and powerful songs. What's your favorite? My favorite. Okay, Suicide Nation. And yeah. I have to say, I get excited when I hear that gun, you know, that that, <laughs> that slide into the chamber, man. I'm like, yeah, you know, some action's going to happen. Um, and I got to say, Blinded by Fear. I know it's like the throwaway song, according to the band, you know, but it's like that song is like, you know, it just, um, it gets me going. I love that song. Yeah, I mean, we should specify that it's probably only a throwaway to them. I don't think yeah. anyone else. I don't think anyone else uses it that way. I mean, it's probably a. It's a. I mean, it's got to be for for an Anthony Gates fan. It's got to be a favorite, you know. You know, and and of course the title track "Slaughter of the Soul" is amazing. I mean, you know, it's it's yeah. like you know being like you know trying to be a cool guy and like well you know it's the, I don't want I want to pick like an album track you know what I mean but I got to give respect where respect is due and "Slaughter of the Soul" the title track on the album is in my opinion, probably they're probably my favorite song the band has ever done. Yeah. Oh, me too. Yeah. Oh, there's no question about it. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's, 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 it's iconic. You know, it is. Yeah. it's reached that level. I'm just going through my notes here real quick. See if I got okay. Else. So there's been, um, They've got, they've garnered a bunch of accolades too. Um, I know the record. I don't I don't believe it charted anywhere, but uh, okay. In two thousand five, in two thousand five, the album was ranked number three hundred in Rock Hard Magazine's book of the five hundred greatest rock and metal albums of all time. It seems low. I think so too, man. I would put that at. Th I mean, I, I want to know what's above that. Yeah, I mean, if it's, I mean, obviously, if it's rock and metal, you're kind of, you're opening it up pretty far. Um, oh, yeah, you might but, have like uh, Sabbath in there, and you'll have like, uh, you know, some Zeppelin. Yeah, but right, even, yeah. even, even with that sort of, you know, company, I would still put it in the top fifty. Absolutely, absolutely. You know? Yeah. Metal Injection ranked Slaughter of the Soul number eight on their list of top ten influential heavy metal albums. Okay. Yeah, and of course, Slaughter of the Soul was inducted into the Decibel Magazine Hall of Fame that you, yeah. Jay Bennett, wrote the piece for. True story. Yeah. True story. Yeah. So I mean, you know, it's been recognized, and uh, un like I said, unlike the other uh, <laughs> most of the other classic records that um, we've you know sort of cited here on Metal Matters, I think this one unanimously among the listeners. Most people will agree that's a classic record. Some people won't agree on some of the choices we've made, 
But I think this one will definitely, the consensus will be that this is something of a classic record. As well it should be. Yeah. Yeah. So Jay, what, uh, what, what's new and exciting in your world, be it writing or music, anything, anything happening? Uh, let's see. I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. It's, it's felt like, it's felt like a little bit like, um, old home week a little bit, uh, lately here. Cause, um, I've been, you know, I've been talking to you a, a lot with about these, these classic records. Um, I just did an interview with, um, our old friend Trevor from Pelican cause oh. they have a new record coming out. Right. Um, I just did a, I just did a, a story um, that's coming out soon for Decibel uh, on Cave-In, our old friends Cave-In, because oh, um, they have a record coming out. And then I just, uh, I just, uh, I just wrote a new bio for for Torch because they have a new record coming out. So it's like all the old, you know, all kind of like the old crew um, are all kind of you know hanging around lately. It's it's funny. It's a, it's kind of a a throwback to I don't know 15 years ago or longer even you know 20. Um, kind of cool. I think we're playing with Torch in uh, June at this festival out in Colorado. Uh, they're on the bill, but I don't know what the lineups are. It's like a two-day kind of thing. And um, they- somewhere in that mix is Torch, uh, Thou, uh, we're playing, uh, Jeff Wilson's new band. Uh, well, it's not it's not a new band, but it's it's new-ish in the fact that it's something that he's going to be touring with. Uh, Chrome Waves is also yeah. playing. You know, we're yeah. doing some dates together to get out there and back. And um, yeah. yeah, but I don't, I don't know if Torch is playing the same day we're playing. But you know, it'd be cool if they were because I haven't seen him in years. Well, you know, John, John, who was their bass player, he switched to guitar now. I didn't know that. Yeah, he switched to guitar, and they've got their bass player is uh, uh, I want to say his name is Alex. He's the main dude from uh, Wrong that kind of noise and rock band from, from Miami. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, he's the bass player now and John switched the guitar. Um, and that's how it is on their new record apparently too. That's, that's what they did. So, hmm. um, a little yeah. bit of a shit there. Yeah. But their new record is cool. It sounds good. Yeah. I should check um, it out. Yeah. I think it's, I think it comes out in like July, but they might already have released a song or two. I don't know how that, I don't know how that stuff works, but, um, Yeah. It's pretty cool, man. Yeah. Well, once again, Jay, thanks for uh, you know breaking off some time to talk about these things. My pleasure, man. Any any time, Mike. I like uh, this. This is this is fun. I like doing this. It's cool. Yeah. And thanks to everyone for listening. That's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, the Guinea Radio Weekly Podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. The show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Guinea Radio, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android. For one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews with artists, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care.